Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, and you forgot one thing. He's here to wish you a Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024, second day of January, in case for some reason you're not keeping track. And it's a delight to uh, welcome you into a new year, a new month, and a, a new day here on Lifeline. Trust you had a great Christmas and a New Year's celebration. And now kind of time to roll up the sleeves and dive back in. New Year's resolutions and doubt, no doubt in place for many of us. Let's hope that lasts beyond <laughs> beyond the end of the month, right? And as we think about 2024, um, certainly a lot of us hoping for a, a much better year compared to last year. Undoubtedly, one thing I can guarantee you that 2024 will be a year of change. Of course, the same thing was true for last year, and I'm going to guarantee you in 2025, the same will be true. One of the biggest changes we're going to be queuing up in 2024 leading into the next year, which will be here before you know it. And that is a change in Washington, D.C. Half the House, I'm sorry, the House, third of the uh, Senate is up for re-election. And, of course, the uh, the highest office in the land, the U.S. presidency. And uh, if you're not sick and tired of hearing the campaign that seemingly never ends, well, get ready, brace hard, because um, you're going to be hearing a lot about this as we begin to tick off the various primaries in states all across the Union. And as we do so... The focus on, ultimately, what do the voters want? What do they wish to choose for uh, the next four years? And one thing certainly seems to be consistent across the board, whether you identify as a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, uh, whatever your your political flavor du jour may be, and that is that uh, voters are angry. Ironically, though, with all that anger, they seem to keep being attracted to the same candidates or the same types of candidates, which makes me wonder if they're both angry and potentially insane, since the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Let's get some insights now. What a great way to kick off the new year than by visiting with our friend, founder and publisher of Reimagine America. She is a successful broadcaster for many years, and she joins us now with some insights into the year to come. Joyce Corey. Welcome. Good to have you with us. Well, Happy New Year, Craig. You as well. So uh, I would imagine you concur with my observation that voters are angry. But does uh, does your concurrence also side with me when I say, well, if the anger is there and legitimate, and I believe that it is and it and it is, then why does it seem as if we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. One thing I know for certain, if you look at many of the polls, overwhelmingly they all say, we really don't want to see the 2024 election look a lot like the 2020 election. And yet, in terms of candidates and... Um, Quite frankly, a, a lot of the uh, the vitriol and uh, whatnot seems to be strangely familiar. Uh, un- unhappily familiar. Um, the party apparatus. Uh, when Biden said, "Well, I'm going to run for re-election, so you can't have a primary," uh, that kind of stopped the, the 
Democrats from really mounting a reasonable primary if you turned around and I've had this conversation with a number of people and said, okay, who could the Democrats nominate now? It's not a very long list, okay? And then on the Republican side, um, the incomprehensible strengthening of uh, Trump's hold on the party as more and more um, bad information or, or indictments or you know criminality is exposed, um, you know, really does is is both frustrating and inexplicable. But there are some explanations, and they do go to the you know we have traditionally had these you know two big parties you know and somehow they're not in the Constitution, folks. You know. We don't have to stick with the Republicans and the Democrats. That's our own laziness as voters. So we are seeing a bit of an uprising, and most of it is here in the West, in Arizona, in Idaho, in Nevada, in Oregon. We are going to see attempts to change state constitutions to uh, diminish the power of the parties by having more of the kind of jungle primary that we have here in California at less than the presidential level. Even here in California, we have closed presidential primaries. You, you can vote in the, if you're an independent, you're allowed to vote in Democratic or independent or libertarian primary, but if you, you're not allowed to vote in the Republican primary, that's a closed primary in California. So, but below that, you know, we have this top two finisher system. What a number of states are trying to put on their November ballots for this year, and it is an indication, it's very clear in Idaho, they're not even making a pretense. They say, since we went to this closed system in 2012, we have seen crazy extremism on the right, uh, primarily on the right, because Idaho is a pretty conservative uh, rural state. But you are seeing these um, extremes, uh, and that was the purpose, because I worked on that on the campaign for the California Jungle Primary. The purpose was to, to force people to the middle, to force people who would emerge as general election candidates to be more flexible, more willing to compromise, more willing to take some from right, some from left in order to be a, a you know an acceptable candidate to the majority all right the thing i don't like about what most of these new initiatives are doing is they're saying um in idaho and arizona for example that you can have top five finisher in the primary go to the general election and then have ranked choice voting and I'm not, and they say, oh, well, but that'll give us uh, candidates, winning candidates who are acceptable to the majority. Wrong answer, folks. Um, well, um, well over half the time in ranked choice voting, the person who has the plurality of votes at the end of the actual election is not the person who eventually wins. And so if you have to get to fourth and fifth place votes, in order to be um, to get 51% quote unquote of the vote you get things like the mayor of Oakland yeah. who, who, who is a disaster by any mention um, 
and and um, and and the mayor of San Francisco was a little bit better, but not much. All right, it worked really well in Alaska, but it didn't require in Alaska going through five rounds of voting. It didn't require in New York City to elect a new mayor to go through five rounds of voting. You had a majority. At, uh, at second place, once you would catch second place and eliminated the fifth place person. I would rather see those states move to a uh, system closer to what we have. Let's say top three finishers go to the general election. And the person who gets the most votes is the most popular. Um, and that probably is um, the best that. You know, that's, I think that would be the best of the three options. Well, and undoubtedly, as we kind of look at the broader landscape, and I want to pick this conversation up, Joyce, around the corner, but as we look at the, the broader landscape, and I, I'm going to hearken back to Richard Nixon for a moment, who, in, in talking about methodology for campaigns, he used to say, from a Republican perspective, you run to the right to win the primary, and you run to the center to win the general election. And yet, more so, it's true of the current president, and I know this will irritate some folks, but it was true of the previous president as well, and even his predecessor, quite frankly. There seems to be an idea that I'm not running to be the president of the United States. I am running to be the president of the Republicans, or in the case of Joe Biden, the president of the Democrats. Um, and so long as we can attract enough in the mushy middle independence, whatnot, to come over to our side, I will have accomplished my goal. And the notion of trying to reach some sort of universal compromise where there's a little bit of give, a little bit of take. You know, I, I, I like it when laws get passed that people are generally happy with, but nobody's entirely happy with. Each side can find a little bit of flaw in it. And so we generally come to this sense of consensus, which is the way Politics America certainly ran from the founding fathers' days to recent years. Now it seems as if the notion of being president for all people and trying to take into consideration what is the hopes, the desires, the dreams, and to the best benefit of all Americans, instead we choose our side, we stick to our side, and nothing more. And you wind up with such angst, such anger, such vitriol. Whatever party is not in power, they spend four years being nothing but angry. And then when they get in power, they spend four years being nothing but engaged in retribution, which is not at all what the candidates are supposed to be about or what these offices are supposed to be about. They are about serving the American people and making sure the totality of the, the and I, I love to quote this line from the Gettysburg Address, government of, by, and for the people. And sadly, we've moved into an arena where it seems to be the few governing the many that doesn't reflect anything like what seems to be fairness and balance across the board. It's just imposing our will upon the opposite side, who we see, sadly and tragically, not as fellow Americans, but somehow as our enemies. And I've long argued that that kind of mentality, particularly if we ever find ourselves back in a serious war, which, given the behavior of countries like China and Russia and North Korea, could crop up just about any day now. 
uh, not being able to find what unifies us, but rather highlighting singularly what divides us, I think is a recipe for a disaster. And at the end of the day, could be a recipe for the ruination of this country. And in the end, the only one that we will have to blame for responsibility will be the picture in the mirror, the face in the mirror. Joyce Cordy with us today with Reimagine America online at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about the choices and the frustration as we head into the election cycle for 2024. Greg Roberts with you. Get back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back once again. And with us today, as I mentioned, Joyce Cordy, publisher and founder of Reimagine America. You know, the the utter irony, as we alluded to uh, just before the break, Joyce, um, variety of polls, be it from the liberal persuasion, the conservative persuasion, and everything in the middle, all suggest that none of the voters are really pleased about a Biden-Trump rematch. They indicate that they want change and yet they keep coming up with the same names and and even ironically look for example i mean it's a foregone conclusion unless uh I don't know, maybe suddenly Gavin Newsom shows up on the scene, which to me seems he's more like a presidential candidate than the governor of California lately. But that said, um, the, the the idea that they want change, and yet if you listen to the approach of people like, well, let's say on the Republican side, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who seems to be a less desirable, less friendly, less polished version, at least policy-wise, of Donald Trump, um, it, it really is difficult to see any any distinction in terms of a sense of of differences um, on on either side, which makes me wonder uh, your comment on potential momentum of so-called uh, uh, no-label candidates. And uh, is it a fair observation to say that, well, we kind of sort of tried that years ago with the Bush-Clinton-Ross-Perot uh, matchup. Maybe it could be argued that was a bit premature, but in the end, all Ross Perot really did was siphon votes off, but really didn't gain the amount of momentum necessary uh, to become a serious presidential candidate. Uh, doesn't the so-called no-labels approach uh, uh, kind of rise to the same notion? Absolutely, because it's the dumbest approach I've ever heard. I mean, I've been a member of No Label since the founding. Um, right now, they're not getting any of my money because I think it's a waste. Um, here's the deal. They will only get ballot access in the maximum of 36 states. All right. They will only um, and and all they're they're proposing to do is say, okay, we'll nominate a slate of candidates, but then we're out of it. We're not going to give you any support. You're going to get a campaign in April, you know, off the ground in April for a November election. Do you think somebody like Mark Cuban, who would be a really attractive candidate to a lot of voters in this country? He's a better businessman than than to take up that deal. All right. That's the problem. There are at least a half a dozen people of great stature and intellect and energy and relative youth. I mean, people in their 50s and early 60s who could be wonderful candidates. But the way in which you approach this, again, you have these two mighty corporations 
you know, it's like when Wells Fargo and, and Bank of America were the only two banks in California. That's the GOP and the, and the Democratic Party. It's like too big corporate. I mean, you know, my background is in multinational corporations. Um, it's like too big corporate giants. And so the people are kind of isolated and, and, and disenfranchised in that process. And no labels is supposed to be a force for changing that. And so when you say, well, a third of the electorate is open to a different candidate, blah, blah, blah. You and I both remember Ross Perot and what it did to George W. H.W. Um, uh, Bush's chances of a second term. Um, is is what it what it accomplishes um, is to make things easier for a minority party like the Republican Party to actually prevail um, because the infrastructure isn't there. So no labels is not the answer. The answer would have been a year ago if the American people had just stood up and said no, not just no, but hell no. And, and in the primary process, if we still exercise some of that, the people who are running, one of the reasons that Trump's running away with the GOP nomination is the people who are running are such are so uninspiring. You know, I mean, I know Chris Christie um, and and I know Nikki Haley, and I think both of them are, you know, charming people. Uh, I think Christie is a wonderful retail politician. Um no, but neither of them. I mean, Christie probably could be a relatively good president. He he was very popular in a blue state as a moderate Republican. You know, the guy I would have really liked to have seen run, or there are two people, are either Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, who thought about it, wanted to do it, just thought that the Trump factor was not his year, right? Um, and Youngkin. And Youngkin thought about it right up until the September elections in Virginia. And Youngkin could still be, you know, I mean, he's got the money in the bank. He's got the story. He's got the charisma. He's led, He's governing in the way that you and I want a, gov- a, a governing figure to govern. That is in the middle. You know, you don't get everything you want. You don't get everything you want. And I will challenge you on one point. I think the infrastructure bill is a really good piece of legislation because it was a really hard fought piece of legislation with Republicans and Democrats working together both sides of the aisle in the Senate. Oh, I agree with you on that point. I mean, I mean and that and that was well overdue. We one one of the things that to. one of the things that I think excited many voters uh for Trump in round number 1 was the promises of dealing with our 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 aging, failing, disintegrating infrastructure. Unfortunately, in his first 4 years, there was a lot of talk and zero action and uh you know, at, at least finally some modicum of of success in that arena, but I, I thoroughly agree with you on that point. That that's yeah, critical, well, and that's that's in my mind that's not a Democrat nor a Republican thing. That's just an American thing. That's an American thing. That and that's the important thing. And that's what as you're if you're a primary voter. All right, let's make an appeal here, Craig. It, the primary is more important in many ways than, than the general because you're going to choose who's going to appear on that general election ballot. 
Okay, so that's where you as an individual voter have the greatest ability to have an influence rather than to be presented as though you're powerless with this set accompli. Um, and so if if I were, you know, I'm an independent, so my choices this year are quite narrow. <laughs> um, I'd like to vote no. Can we start over again? Um, and start, you know, and choose these 24 candidates differently. Because, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Nikki Haley, for example, would be a, would be a Hoover-like catastrophe, okay? I don't think she would be a relative success like Bush's or Reagan. Um, but, you know, and, and, as a woman, I got to tell you, I don't think this country is ready to elect a woman. But I do believe there are a number, and they're mainly Republican governors and major Republican business people who would have made wonderful candidates and who could bring the kind of vision and change and excitement. There's no excitement. There's a lot of anger and unhappiness and conspiracy theory in our current election politics. But there's no excitement. Well, and I think part of the part of the problem here, if I if I might inject, I, yeah. I think that we're 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 less focused these days on trying to elect the candidate who's going to keep promises, actually fix things. We instead seem to be attracted to the candidate that is um, seems to voice or agree and speak out loud our sense of anger and our frustration. And so when said candidate gets up and, and rails on topic A, B, or C, uh, it, the topics resonate with our sense of anger and frustration. And we go, yeah, that's my guy. He's saying exactly what I've been thinking. The problem is then there's never any forward momentum to actual policy that changes anything in any sort of a significant fashion. And so, you know, it, it, it's almost as if we are uh, an angry group of people, both Democrat and Republicans, in search of a of a leader who will help light the match to our our anger to an even greater degree, you think there's any truth to that? Well, I think that's the set of choices we're being faced with. I don't think that's where the American people are. I mean, if you go out and deal with your neighbors, or you know, you, you're in the shopping center or whatever, people are not that angry with one another. All right, they're looking for leadership. You know, it's it's the problem is, um, and I can't remember who said it first, but but we have elected representatives who are following their voters instead of leading their voters. We elect people to positions of leadership. I think we could form a new consensus in this country, you know, but you know me well. I'm an optimist, right? I believe we could form a new form of 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 consensus and that building that consensus would allow us to tackle some of the big economic issues that we have that we seem to be afraid of um, as well as some of the social issues but that takes leadership and it takes somebody who's willing to sit down across the resolute desk look at the American people and tell them the truth and I think if you had that kind of a candidate who said, you know, we can't keep on printing money because, you know, our great, great, great grandchildren aren't going to be able to afford it. 
uh, if we if we talked about you know how do we rebuild our uh, industrial strength because we can't have national defense without a strong industrial heavy industrial base etc that people would sit in front of their TVs and they would listen to that so that takes a different kind of candidate a different kind of messenger than we have seen because I'm reading Liz Cheney's book right now uh, which is extremely interesting um, you know and, and we're talking about a principled conservative I mean more conservative than I am more conservative than you are but what she talks about is how in the, in the Congress people don't talk about how to serve their constituents they talk about how to retain their power by placating their constituents by appealing to their worst instincts instead of their better angels. And this country, you know, if we go back to Abraham Lincoln, if we go back further to, you know, Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, those were people, you know, or James Madison or, or Alexander Hamilton, those were people who believed in the possible, not uh, not having rancor about yesterday. You know, that that's why you have a musical about Hamilton and not about Burke. <laughs> um, you, you know, it, it's, that, it's that belief in American exceptionalism that we have lost in the last 20 years. Remember in 2000, when George Bush ran, he didn't run saying, well, this is wrong and that's wrong. He ran, he ran on a platform of compassionate conservatism. All right. How can we have conservative governing principles, constitutional principles, all right, conservative economics, and at the same time, have great compassion for one another and our fellow citizens? What a difference that election what yeah, that campaign is 25 years ago from today oh undoubtedly so you, you barely recognize it and, and then when i hear all of the uh the people that want to line up and say things like well you know we're just headed toward a civil war and you know that's where it's going to be and there's no sense of of fear or trepidation over language like that there's no acknowledgement that when you use that kind of rhetoric and you understand it in the context of our history, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying and shedding blood because there were two opposing opinions and you couldn't get the two to come together. And in the end, ultimately, the correct side won. I know for those of you that are maybe uh, ex-Southerners and still fly the Union Jack or the, the Confederate flag proudly would disagree with that. But in reality, from a, certainly from a scriptural standpoint, uh, that's the truth, that, the, 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 that righteousness won out. But, you know, when, when we use such rhetoric like that and we, we begin to couch ourselves in terms of, if you don't agree with me, you're my enemy, and it's about all about crushing you and destroying you and vanquishing you and all of that, you know, that that is not the kind of mentality upon which this nation was created. It certainly isn't the kind of mentality that allowed this nation to win multiple world wars. And it's not the kind of mentality that's going to allow us to advance very far, if even 
exist very far. If we wind up cutting this nation in half and going to a legitimate civil war because we're not willing to come together and be reasonable and compromise and work together, there will be no United States because one half of us can't exist without the other. And if you think it should be tried, uh, you know what? Give me an example in history where it's been tried and worked out successfully. You can't. All right. We'll take a time out. Come back to more of our discussion. Taking a look at uh, the year that's being queued up is 2024. Joyce Cordy, founder and president of Reimagine America. On the web at reimagineamerica.org. A time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Joyce Cordy from Reimagine America with us tonight online at reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, we've talked somewhat tonight about what can upset the election. Certainly the candidates themselves can do it. Uh, Right now we're looking at uh, one side wants to get Hunter Biden to get Biden voters to drop him. The other side is indicting Trump to get Trump voters to drop him. Uh, But let's talk for a moment about the unknown, and that is either a surprise economic or perhaps an economic situation triggered by a geopolitical situation. We've got the ongoing battle between Ukraine and Russia. Now we've just lit the match to what's been happening um, in the Middle East and and, uh, I'm still, quite frankly, confused over why so many feel as if Israel doesn't have a right to defend herself. But nevertheless, uh, we're hearing now that young voters are beginning to shift away from Biden because they don't appreciate his position in standing with Israel against uh, Hamas in, in Gaza, which, to my mind, first question is, where and why? Who would they begin to shift to? And and what are your thoughts in terms of the potentiality of the impact of either of these political situations in relationship to Russia and Ukraine and Hamas and Israel uh, becoming a potential light to the powder keg? Well, I, the potential in, in Ukraine is frightful. I mean, an errant Russian missile doing damage in Poland, welcome to World War III. Um, So getting that aid to the Ukrainians and and securing their uh, air defense system is a domestic national security imperative. Well, particularly when you look at the long-standing issues that we've had historically during the last century in Europe, and uh, a a note to the uh, junior member of the House in Georgia, Ukraine is part of Europe, which is why the notion of disassembling NATO has has always troubled me greatly and demonstrates, I think, a tremendous degree of, of ignorance, perhaps, over history and the fact that like it or not, we are tethered to the continent and should things across the continent explode, uh, the, the whiplash effect that would be felt here in the United States would be unavoidable. And the notion of somehow wanting to take sort of, I don't know, the Charles Lindbergh, you know, isolationist opinion, I, you know, that might have been quaint and maybe that was possible a hundred and something years ago. Today, with the global economy that we have, we're talking about an impossibility for the United States to sit anything thing out or to find any conflict for that matter that doesn't somehow in one way or a fashion or form tie us together we are the indispensable nation 
All right. And and one of you you break bring up I'm gonna hit you with three things real quick. Number one, you're absolutely right about history. We don't teach history anymore and we need to. Because if our kids understood history, we wouldn't have the intersectionality movement on the campuses that says, well, if you believe in LGBTQ rights, then automatically it's Black Lives Matter, and automatically then it is open immigration, and then automatically it is the Palestinian right of return. You can't pick and choose among those issues. If you take one, you take them all. All right, that's what we're teaching on our college campuses. All right, it's a little different than when you and I were in school. However, you know, we don't teach history. We don't, if, if you ask the average student in high school who was not part of an eighth grade trip that went to the Holocaust, uh, to Washington, D.C., and went to the Holocaust Museum, they don't understand World War II. Okay, so therefore, they don't understand the importance of NATO. They don't understand the creation of the state of Israel. They don't understand that it was the mullahs who forced the Palestinians out of Israel. They don't understand that for 2,000 years there have been Jews in Judea, all right? And they don't understand that the Arabs threw out 600,000 Jews who had lived in Yemen and Iraq and so forth since the Middle Ages and, and they ended up in Israel on, an, on, a, on what was called Operation Magic Carpet. These people were so uh, insulated that they tried to start cooking fires on the floors of airplanes, right? Um, as some of your listeners know, I have family in Israel, and I am torn by this conflict. I'm horrified by what started it. All right. I also know that both sides are wrong, and, and, and I'm no fan of Netanyahu. I put the man in jail where he belongs. But it's, it, you know, we're in a rock and hard place situation. My heart goes out to every single Palestinian. All right. They don't deserve to be bombed for the mere fact that they are closed up in this small enclave of land and have no connection to the rest of so-called Palestine, uh, Palestine state. All right. I think the king of Jordan is right that we need a multinational solution. Absolutely because if you if you if you look at it and you know we're beginning to get it's not going to come Craig from the end of the gun. All we are doing with all that bombing allowing all that bombing is we're creating the next generation of terror. Of course we are. Absolutely we are. And the other issue at hand, and this needs to be exposed more, there's a little bit of it beginning to come out, but now they're beginning to, to, to discover that the leadership of Hamas, the leadership within Gaza, have all been on the take. They have all been, been you know, engorging themselves and, and any, any sense of public benefits that, that any of the Palestinians living in the Strip have received has all come from international support. Any money that's generated locally stays with the leadership. These people are living like kings and in opulent mansions, most of which are now being turned to rubble, but they, they have done enormously well compared to the quality and standard of life of the people that they quote-unquote serve, and and I think the, the awareness of that needs to be there, and you're right. All we do uh, by continuing this approach is we're just creating 
creating uh, a greater sense of anger for the next set of terrorists. And I think there is no other choice but then there to be a multinational solution. We need to be there, boots on ground, and be serious about bettering the lives for everybody involved um, and, and, and recognize that the approach of just, you know, bomb them into the, the last century um, may, may give some short-term satisfaction, but it is certainly no term, long-term solution. Well, and they're innocent people. The two million people who live in Gaza, you know, are, are caught between the ocean and the Sinai Desert, and, and they're not, you know, Hamas is a dictatorship. It's not that they want Hamas to rule them. They're, they're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, unfortunately, quite literally, because the Egyptians won't give them access either to even temporary sanctuary in the Sinai Desert. I mean, it must come. I, I pray every night for, for, you know, man's inhumanity to man to end. Um, but we've got to stop this because the Palestinian people are innocent in this process. We've got to stop the settlements. You know, the Israelis have become part of the problem instead of being part of the solution. All right. And that's not the Israeli people. I can tell you that because I have a lot of family and I'm more family there than here. Um, but and and they're not they're as frightened and as confused and as um in pursuit of peace as as any of us all right but but we need governments in the middle east to step up and say you know the sunni governments to step up and say we're going to become a part of the solution and for 50 years oh 60 for 60 years now we've needed them or is it 70 70 um we've needed those moderate Arab states, moderate is a, is a word in italics, uh, to, to step up and become a part of the solution. Because the people of Gaza have a right to a decent standard of living. For, for your listeners who are you know, um, uh, Christian, uh, the Crusades, the point of, of embarkation and embarkation in the Middle East for the Crusaders in Gaza, it's that old uh, uh, an enclave. We need to help these people, and we need to, at the same time, protect the Israeli citizens from the marauders of Hamas and Hezbollah. Thank you, Iran. Yeah, unfortunately, you're right there, and I'm glad you mentioned that because there are some third parties um, who both directly and indirectly benefit from setting a a match to the the torch here, uh, and certainly Iran is one of the biggest ones. And you know, while they can be stirring the pot uh, over here uh, remotely, it's a great way to engage. And then let's not any of us fool each other. Uh, there's also a degree by which that this is a proxy war. You better believe it that it's the United States against Iran, and I would suspect uh, even even a good dose of the Soviet you know, or Russia rather is probably behind some of this. Because let's face it, what 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 benefits them more than knowing that the distraction of a war that involves Israel will capture America's attention, and as we've already seen, it will weaken any sense of resolve uh, in in relationship to standing with uh, with Ukraine. And while we might have vested interest in wanting to support that part of 
of Europe at the end of the day, I think from a historical standpoint, you're going to begin to see if, if it's one or the other, the alliances are going to shift. And who else benefits from that but Russia? Absolutely. And China. And China, and of by course. The way, by the way, Iran raised the stakes today. They put a frigate into the Red Sea in proximity to the American fleet. This is not, you know, I mean, this is saber rattling of the first order. But but you're right. We're fighting a proxy war, and it's more than just Iran and the United States. It's the Sunni Arabs and the, and the Iranians. And the Sunnis would just assume that we take the brunt of the casualties. But there is also an economic imperative in all of this. And it's an American imperative. It's also a national security imperative. That the weapons, you know, it's not like we write a check to the Ukraine or Israel and say, you know, go out and buy weapons. The, the Pentagon buys the weapons from U.S. suppliers. So we're creating jobs, necessary jobs for a 21st century um, national security in the United States by, uh, by providing the munitions. We are also, the Ukrainians are losing a, a half of, they're going to lose a third of, of the golden age of, of young manhood in those trenches so that we don't have to send boots on the ground to fight a, a bloody war against Russia. So those two things, those four things, all come together to benefit the American people and why Congress is having so much trouble with this, um, the, the immigration piece of it. Well, there's clear, there's clearly a, sh- a shift, and, and it goes back to your point earlier, Joyce, and that is that I think there's a there's a good dose of, of either forgetfulness or just outright ignorance of history because there's clearly been a major shift. I would have never imagined to see at a time when people that wear the label conservative would suddenly be siding with somebody like Vladimir Putin or or what is effectively the remnants of the Soviet Union that we've understood has been politically, ideologically, economically an enemy of ours and stated so for the better part of, let's face it now, a century. And suddenly now we want to line up on that side. And we've heard multiple members of Congress uh, from, quite frankly, both houses defending the likes of Vladimir Putin instead of calling him for what he is. Ironically enough, though, I remind myself that there was a time when Nazis who identified with Germany were either perhaps of German blood or were least sympathetic could fill Madison Square Garden for rallies uh, pre-World War II and nobody said anything about it. So, you know, we, we've, had, we've had a history ourselves of not really understanding uh, what's at stake or clearly being able to identify and call out who our true enemies are. No, we, we, are, we can be very short-sighted. Um, but, but that is, again, if we don't, those who do not read history are condemned to repeat it. Yeah, good note to end on. I appreciate the time and the insights tonight. Joyce Cordy with Reimagine America, kind of helping us stir the pot and uh, hopefully going to really promote the notion of reading, doing the research, learning the history, and then getting involved politically and exercising your obligation. I mean, it's a right to vote. It's your obligation to vote. Joyce Cordy, reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org.